This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us this Tuesday at 4 p.m. to hear from our friends at PhotoFab. The topic will be precision metal parts, procurement made easy. Go to devicetalks.com to register. It's free and you should be there. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salami, welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This is episode number 51. Happy to have you back here. We've got a great show for you today. The first keynote conversation we'll have is with Christina Jones. Christina Jones is the CEO and founder of GuardianLane.com. Guardian Lane won the first pitch contest held by MedTech Color. You might remember couple of episodes ago, maybe four or five, we had Dr. Angelique Johnson, the CEO of MemStem on the show. She's also a uh, co-founder of MedTech Color. It's a group that's uh, advancing representation of people of color in the medical device industry. They had their first pitch contest this week. Christina Jones and Guardian Lane won. So we're having her on the show to tell her very cool story and to talk about Guardian Lane's uh, mission. It's really essential. And uh, it's one that we don't talk about nearly enough here on MedTech. That is uh, mental health and particularly helping children who are uh, dealing with grief. And we've got uh, a lot of that going on these days. So great to have her on the program. Great to hear her story. I'm also thrilled, exceptionally thrilled, especially thrilled to have Steve McMillan. He is the CEO, President, and Chairman of Hologic. This is a, sort of a great uh, return for Hologic. Hologic was one of our first companies represented on the podcast. We had them in, on episode two, and we'll talk about that in the discussion. They, of course, had uh, an exceptionally busy and important year. They really uh, shifted gears into diagnostics. They really stepped up and helped uh, diagnose COVID. And Steve will talk about that transition, how it was, how their plans were impacted by COVID, accelerated by COVID, and also where are we going from here? And they're also working on a very cool global women's health index. And we'll, we'll hear more about that. So exceptionally thrilled to be bringing you this conversation. And I'm also thrilled to be bringing my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, onto the show. How are you, Chris? Doing well. Happy Friday, Tom. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I'm feeling a little uh, a little FOMV there, Chris. A little uh, fear yeah. of missing the vaccine. It seems like everybody's getting vaccinated before we are up here. Yeah, we're starting. Yeah, like even even our medical team uh, is, you know, starting to see people we know in our company getting vaccinated. I, uh, you know, here in Minnesota, um, they're rolling out to everybody over 16 uh, starting uh, starting next Tuesday. Like we're talking here on on Friday and we're finally getting this thing rolled out in Minnesota. But man, yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope uh, I hope things get better in Massachusetts soon and they start rolling that out there, too, because I'm, it sounds like he wanted to get vaccinated yesterday. I can't help but think that if they hadn't let Tom Brady go, I'd be getting vaccinated. Am I crazy to put that that connection together? Brady would have gotten it done. I think Brady would have gotten it done. I really do. Yeah, because it was like, you know, he can win a playoff game. And <laughs> He's just a winner. He's just, He's a, just winner, a winner, Chris. He's a winner. Right. 
So I, I was I was hearkening <laughs> well, back to the our... Boston accent. There. <laughs> little, little New England just threw in there. I can throw it in there from time to time. I think I called you kid last week on the podcast, hey, kid. Which, is a, which is a total Boston. Yeah, which you like forties, Tom. <laughs> Doesn't matter. We're all kids. Oh, yeah, that's true. So I was listening to uh, our very first podcast of a year ago, and oh, wow. uh, it was uh, I think showed a lot of courage on our part with our first choice of uh, of topic. Do you remember what I what our first bit of banter was? What I asked you about on the very first episode of Device Talks Weekly Podcast? Oh my gosh, Tom! With this pandemic, I it sounds I, that's it feels like it's a hundred years ago. Like what, yeah. were we talking about like? you know, what kind of horses we use with our, our wagons. <laughs> I was asking you a critical question. Chris, have you found any toilet paper? Wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you were having trouble scoring toilet paper, but you said it would all work out. And uh, it all worked out. There, worked there was, out. there was never an absence of toilet paper <laughs> in, the new, in the new marker household. I think, I think it showed again, great courage <laughs> on our part to, uh, to make our very first conversation about toilet paper. I think that's why people keep coming back right. for insights yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. The courage. Yeah. <laughs> they might also come back for our uh, intense new markers, newsmakers list. Chris. Here we go. All right. All right. Let's, let's do it. Let's roll into let's it. Let's do it, man. What new is markers, newsmakers for the week. We're going to run number five to two. And then uh, for number one, we'll bring in a special guest. A tr- should I just say a special guest? I almost yeah, said. There we go. All right. We'll just say a special guest who will speak to the number one item on Newmarker's newsbakers list. So, all right. Chris Newmarker, hit it off. All right. Number five on the list, we've got Thermo Fisher Scientific is uh, launching uh, this device called the Thermo Scientific AeroSense Sampler. And uh, we have a picture of this thing on medical design and outsourcing and mass device. And it kind of it looks like a toaster oven. It looks like a toaster oven. I could picture somebody in a break room walking in and being like, oh, there's a new toaster oven. And then they realize it's actually this thing that sucks in uh, air from the surrounding area and samples it. And you send this stuff to a lab. And within 24 hours, you get results about uh, you know what kind of pathogens are in the air, including COVID-19. But yeah, kind of a kind of a neat device. You have a picture that where they're you know showing it's it looks like cool. it's in a factory. You know this, which you know yep. we have a lot of uh, you know we uh, you know we're in an industry that has has plants making medical devices and parts and all kinds of stuff. So I mean that w- that would certainly uh, give me some peace of mind if I was in a workspace and they had something like taking air samples and letting everybody know if there's been a COVID nineteen exposure in the air. So um, so yeah, kind of a kind of cool cool piece of equipment. Yeah, great device. It looks to me, I'm looking at the picture right now, it looks to me like a, a toaster ever had a child with Nomad, the uh, the, the wayward uh, space drone that was uh, reclaimed by the Enterprise in the original Star Trek. Wow. Yeah, remember that one? Wow, you were really reaching back on that one. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. At least you weren't start, didn't start talking about Babylon 5 or something, you know, like. No, a, I'm not a big Babylon uh, 5 guy. And I'm not a big Doctor Who guy either. Which my son actually had a good question. If Doctor Who travels in time, why isn't he Doctor When? Wow. I know, right? Deep, I tell you, the, the, the young, you know, youth, they, you know, they, they, they realize these things. But <laughs> I had no good answer for him. And I still don't know why, why this guy is blue either. So we'll, we'll, this kid is suffering. That's because we All have right. a lot of nitrogen in the air, Tom. The oh. nitrogen, you know, reflects out, you know, blue light. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm that's not sure helpful. if that's true, but I think I'll go it tell is. him that right now. It's a good guess. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta roll with the punches, Tom. 
<laughs> Speaking of, of seeing things, number four, Chris. Number four on the list, you know, we've, uh, you know, Second Sight, which in the past has been a really, really interesting company like this, uh, you know, retinal prosthesis, you know, that could, you know, help, uh, you know, help, help people who, you know, are, are blind, you know, like in, in some way, like see things again you know they had a really tough year last year yeah you know the uh, the plan was that they're going to be uh, merging with this uh, pixium vision that they're going to do something with but it looks like uh looks like the deal is uh in trouble now i guess the good news for second sight is that they have some some investors uh, lined up and they're planning to raise nearly 28 million so that, i mean that's the good news it sounds like pixium at least according to second sight and sec filing they said the pixium you know informed them that this would break their uh, memorandum of uh, understanding for a, uh, a merger to do uh, to do the private placement so you know it, 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 they, they even said in the sec filing this thing could be heading to court so so maybe there won't be a second sight pixium vision merger yeah, it's an interesting story that you wrote, and and I'm not quite clear on what the 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 lack of communication was between the two. But I hope it's figured out because uh, Second Sight, as we talked about, is a very cool company and it's able to help restore vision with people who lost it due to retinitis pigmentosa. Right. And it's actually my uncle had retinitis pigmentosa, so it's in our family. And wow. uh, I mean, it was a uh, definitely a first generation model. But it was the kind of thing that you could see ten years, twenty years from now being a real. A real totally. life life restorer. So I hope that gets sorted out. The the idea that you could wear you know goggles or glasses that would basically do seeing for you, and then you know I would you know like like deliver that information to your brain so you could see again is just uh, just, just awesome idea. All right, well, now it's time for our first keynote conversation. As I mentioned up top, I had the chance to speak with Christina Jones. Christina is the CEO and founder of GuardianLane.com. Guardian Lane beat out a number of great companies in MedTech Color's first pitch contest. So Guardian Lane took first place. Second place went to Starling Medical, with its founder, Alex Revelos. Third place went to Zienza Biosciences, founder, Derek Danyard. Fourth place was a tie between Alva Health, founder, Sandra Saldana, and Respira Labs, founder Maria Artunduaga. So congratulations to MedTech Color for a great pitch contest. And of course, we're going to hear from the winner of the pitch contest, Christina Jones, right after we hear from Brandon Hoser. Brandon is the sales manager at PacWorld USA. Let's listen. Over the last several weeks, we have been discussing who PacWorld USA is and what we do. The main point I would like to express is that we are the experts in heat sealing. We have been at this for over 25 years, encountering a wide variety of applications. Although PacWorld's main focus is to provide medical-grade heat sealing equipment, we, along with our sister company, Toss Machine Components, have worked on some interesting projects within and beyond the medical realm. Our Toss heat sealing technology has been used for sealing consumer items, such as blister packaging of toy cars and for high-speed food packaging and automated lines. In more critical applications, our equipment is used in the manufacturing process of dirigibles and even the cooling systems of spacesuits. Since the coronavirus pandemic, our equipment has become more sought after domestically and abroad. TOS technology has been used to retool old equipment here in the United States to produce N95 masks as the need grew to manufacture domestically. Packworld machines are used for the manufacturing of single-use bioreactor bags, which is a critical need in the production of vaccines. Of course, Packworld heat sealers are still needed to seal overwrap sterilization bags for test kits and other devices. 
The many applications Packworld has provided solutions for is a testament to our tribal knowledge and expertise in heat sealing. Please call us to discuss your application at 610-746-2765 or email info at packworldusa.com. Well, Christina Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you've had quite a week. Congratulations on your uh, <laughs> winning the MedTech Color Pitch Contest. That's great. I want to get into your background a bit, and then we'll talk about your company, Garden Lane, your CEO of Garden Lane, which is not necessarily a, a MedTech company by our definitions, but it's certainly an important healthcare company, I think. And I've, I'm really kind of excited to talk about it. It, it sadly feels very needed and topical right now with all that's gone on. So what is your your background? How did you become CEO of this company? Yeah. So I guess my first, you know, job in mm-hmm. as an adult, I should say, was actually in advertising. I was an art director at a, a few advertising agencies and built digital campaigns and commercials for brands such as SeaWorld, Disney, and then was a photo art director for Walmart. So any visual that you saw come out of Walmart, I had something to do with that. (laughs) And I I shouldn't say just me, it was me and my team. Actually, (laughs) randomly in Hollywood, Florida, you would never expect a, a studio out of Hollywood, Florida to be producing so much content for for some amazing brands. the world's largest brands. (laughs) I didn't realize that that was coming out of Hollywood, Florida. Yeah. So how did you then shift over to, uh, this is not your first company. You had another company, Court Buddy, where you were co-founder. So how did you move from being someone in in arts or graphic arts or creativity into into running a a company? Yeah. So my husband uh, was an attorney Mm -hmm. and he knew that he wanted to start a business that was beyond just himself. And so because I was under the same roof, he was always asking me questions and and telling me about his ideas because like you mentioned, I I do come from a creative background. That's just how my brain is wired. So Mm -hmm. I was helping him think about, you know, how to think about strategies in a completely different way. And throughout the process of thinking how he can have a business somehow in the legal sphere, we realized that there was a new ruling in courts that were allowing attorneys to appear for single court appearances. And so just seeing this ruling and asking around if people knew about it and and finding that the general population had no idea that an, an attorney can just appear for one court appearance and then essentially bow out of your case, we thought, could this potentially make legal services affordable? Hmm. And so I saw how my husband was running the firm at the time and he was, you know, charging some of his clients $300, $400 flat rates, no retainer. And I asked him, is this something specific to you or is this something that can be replicated? And he said, solo attorneys could 100% do this all the time. So we married that single court appearance, the the ability for an attorney to appear for a single court appearance with the flat rates and created a platform where you could easily find an attorney within seconds for your specific case. And actually the, the, the person who needed the attorney, the consumer actually put in their wow. price. And so you would find an attorney that fit within your budget and you could get to work that day. Wow. So so the significance of that ruling was that you don't have to connect with an attorney long term. You don't have to pay a retainer or anything like that. You could just have them come and represent you for that moment or that that hearing. And then you're paying basically for the hour or however long it took. Exactly. And it, it was actually the court's initiative to allow 
people to have access to attorneys, but nobody knew about it. There were mm-hmm. some attorneys that didn't even know about it. So it was just the timing was perfect. And was this in Florida exclusively or is this broader than that? So we started in Miami to test it out and quickly got interest from other counties in Florida, then randomly Texas came knocking on the door. We got so many inquiries from Texas. And so we had to decide, okay, what type of business do we want to build? Do we want to build a a large scalable business? And so we said, hey, why not? If people need it, why are we holding it back? And so we ended up scaling it to every single state and also raised money through a series A to do that. So moved from Florida to San Francisco did the whole, you know, song and dance in Silicon Valley. (laughs) And then it it got to a point where, you know, we were getting a little pressure to grow faster and it didn't feel as authentic as it did in the beginning. So we had to make the decision as entrepreneurs, you know, or is this something we want to ride until the sunlight or, or do we have more in us? And we really missed those early days. And so we decided with our board to to step down and mm. be able to create new businesses. Wow. What is so what is, what is the status of Corp Buddy now? So it has changed. I think it got bought out and it is now Law Chance. Okay. Completely different concept from what we had created. So that that's a little you know, it yeah. kind of hurts my heart. You know, we were helping so so many people, but from from what I hear it's it's still you know, it's still in operation, which as a first time entrepreneur, you can only, you know, be happy that your, your first baby is still, still alive. So. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. So uh, that's interesting that you have court buddy and, and now guardian lane and both have very, I should say, benevolent functions in, in terms of helping people who, who providing help for people who need the help. We usually talk to people who are creating devices to make people less sick or, or hopefully make them better. This is a, another way to sort of help people. Is is your primary driver, or, or, or do, you, do you like being an entrepreneur and the thrill of creating a company or are you really driven more by the purpose that that is sort of at the front of that? I think it's a mix of both. Yeah. You know, I've, I've always been enamored by the fact that just a single thought can transform people's lives. And then also being able to see a company scale from two people in, you know, in a home to an office in San Francisco with 30 employees, that that's just magic. So, I mean, once you get a taste of that, you cannot go back to working for somebody else. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so tell us a bit about, uh, about Guardian Lane. What was the origin of this? Well, actually in between Court Buddy and Guardian Lane, you worked for Investment Group. Is that right? Oh, for 500 yep. Startups. Yeah. So 500 Startups was actually an investor in Court Buddy. And so once we stepped down and they they learned about it, they were like, come, come help us with our companies. And so I think it was a month before COVID hit, our COVID shut everything down. We were flying from Los Angeles up to San Francisco every week to mentor the startups in their recent cohort, getting them ready for demo day. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't... It was before then. I think we stepped down from Court Buddies November 2019. And, you know, we had been working on Court Buddy for five years just straight and we were exhausted. So it was nice to have a moment to just breathe. And so we decided to travel and we went to Thailand for a month. 
And that was the time to think, well, what do we want for the Mm -hmm. future? What are we going to do next? And I had always wanted to write a book on a a pretty life-changing event that happened to me. And I wanted to teach other kids how to essentially cope and stay connected. So I I guess I'll go into how Guardian Lane even came about. It sounds like we're, we're moving into it. Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah. So when I was seven years old, my, my dad died from cancer and I actually did not oh. get any type of support. My school, like in the, I think you heard in the pitch, uh, gave me a Christmas tree. It didn't even introduce me to potentially other students at the school who had lost um, a loved one. It was just, we're sorry for your loss here. Like, this is from our community. Here's a Christmas tree. And so it really made me feel alone. And I think my mom did try to put me in counseling once. And all I can remember is it was a dark, scary ride to the office. And I remember the smell of burnt popcorn. Amazing what you remember. So that clearly did not help. (laughs) No, that did not. Uh, So I had to find my own ways to cope and mentally, you know, process what happened and, you know, why is my my story so different from my my you know my friends in at school and outside of school they still have both of their parents like what happened why did i lose mine and so i throughout the years i found like really random quirky ways to just stay connected to my dad so for mm-hmm. example i mean everybody in their house or apartment you have some weird like you know leak or uh, door cracks open every once in a while. Well, I had a shower door that would always pop open. And every time I would hear that, that was like my reminder to like say hi to my dad. Like it was like my way of saying, oh, he's here. Mm -hmm. And so I knew throughout the years, I think when I was 17 years old, it hit me that I wanted to write a book. Never did it. But now that I had that time after Court Buddy, I was like, now's the time. I understand how to to write the book, find an editor and also get it published and so decided to write a book called my forever guardian and it it follows five characters who each have a different type of loss whether it be a sibling an, uh, a pet uh, a grandparent and then i put myself in the book little christina's in there <laughs> <laughs> and through the process of writing this book i was like wait a minute these characters are helping each other heal through through their own ways of staying connected to the person they've lost. And I said, this is a social healing network. And so mm-hmm. the techie in me was like, wait a minute, does this exist? And so went on a hunt to try to find what was available for kids to connect online, to help them through their grieving process. And to my surprise, it was like a desert. All I could find were local efforts. So whether it be a local grief group or a local grief camp. And I'm looking at also the the culture of children today with TikTok and YouTube. And I'm like, wait mm-hmm. a minute, we have to we have to catch up for these kids. Why is everything yeah, there's, there's definitely, still so isolated? I was going to say, there's definitely a lot out there for them, but it's not necessarily helpful. Right, right. And and everything is so siloed and you need a car to get to a car or a plane ride to get to these resources. So it just, it didn't make any sense. And so started talking to people in the industry. So whether it be grief counselors, you know, doctors, pediatricians, and also grieving parents, just to be an ear, like what, what does this space need? Mm -hmm. Because the last thing I wanted to do was create something that I thought the children needed. And so what came out of those discussions was that you have to lead with feeling 
like what are the what is the child feeling and from that you can then provide them a path to to healing and the second point was that children express themselves through play which we all know that a child may not vocalize how they're feeling mm-hmm. or or what they're currently experiencing but you allow them to play and it will come out so with those two concepts that came out of my conversations i really looked at the landscape of what was available for children and that's how guardian lane really came to be so I'll, i guess I'll, I'll just say the the full the full uh, one minute pit so guardian lane is essentially a mental health platform that's innovating children's grief counseling so we're using video sharing technology community and telecounseling and i say i like to wrap it up with a whole lot of fun <laughs> so essentially the children access the site by clicking on how they're feeling and this is actually being recorded for the family to have some data around how to support the child further the the emotion that they select leads them to content that's specifically created for that grief emotion and this is content that was made for guardian lane so it was never produced um, prior and you cannot find it outside of Guardian Lane. And so it walks them through an activity, whether wow. it be painting, songwriting, movement. We have like memory boxes, like jewelry making for so that you can have something always on you in the memory of the person that you've lost. And the whole idea is to allow them to express how they're feeling. Because I'm sure you know with ACEs, when a child holds in, and cannot express the emotions and the feelings and the hurt, it can lead to long-term mental and health problems. And so the whole idea of Guardian Lane is to get it out and then also to share, to know that they're not alone. So under every single video, you will see a response video from the children. So when they're finished their project, they actually upload it back to the site. So children can see, oh, wait a minute, I'm not alone in how I'm feeling. I'm not alone in this experience that that I've gone through. And it allows them to to really get on a healthy grieving journey. So that video that they make after watching that content is available to kids who watch it that same section later on so they can make that connection. Exactly. So all the videos of the the children's projects lives under the grief counselor's main video. As I mentioned, kind of at the top between the extraordinary reasons that we're all having difficulties now, now be it the losses due to COVID or other struggles that our society is facing, and couple that with the fact that our our mental health system for for kids is in shambles, at least in our state and maybe in others. It seems like a real, real critical need. Business-wise, though, how do you make money for this? Is this something that insurers will cover? So it's actually a marketplace. So the schools that that we're partnered with or the families that have created accounts for their children, they can actually book one-on-one sessions with the featured grief counselors. So that is how the platform makes money. And for the schools, we sell packages. So a school will start with 20 20 sessions that they can just pull from, and it goes up. They can either purchase 20, 40, or 60 sessions for their schools. So we have some districts that purchase for multiple schools, and a district can create multiple schools accounts where they can log in and literally just book times, and it's pulling from that district's the bundle. 
that they've purchased. That's clever. So it complements their their existing counseling and, and sort of provides them support. And do they also see the responses and the videos from the children to sort of measure their... So they can't see the, the videos. They can see how the child has checked in. So they can see if over time a child you know, has checked in, you know, 55% of the time is sad and maybe, you know, 2% happy. So they can have at least some understanding over time, how the child is, like how they started and how how they are after interacting with with the site. And one thing I haven't heard you mention is COVID. This is not a response to we can't see people anymore. We can't be in the same room. This sounds like something that's built for the long term, for the long haul. Definitely. It just happens, the timing. So it's interesting. I released the book in April of 2020, you know, right when the world was shutting down. And there was just, you know, a heaviness on the world. And I, I wondered, is this the right time to even release anything? And I remember talking to friends and family and they're like, have you been looking at the news? This is the absolute perfect time to release a book on on grief and loss. And so nothing that we've done was in direct response to COVID. It was just something that happened to align with what was happening in the world. And but but to to give you some stats on how many children have been affected by COVID, there is a website that I we can actually link to that's tracking how many children have been affected. And to to date it's around 1.1 million children. So that's been affected as in someone they know has has passed away. Oh my gosh. Okay. No, that's, wow. That's a big number. Yeah. And that's kind of a hard thing to explain too. So you're right that the timing couldn't be better. What were the, what were the, the, the rewards of winning the, the, the pitch contest and, and where do you, you go from here with Guardian Lane? Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm still on cloud nine and in shock, we were up against some amazing really great. entrepreneurs and in medical devices. And so winning first place is a 25K non-dilutive um, grant. And in terms of where we go next, so we launched in January of this year and we've already partnered with over a thousand schools. That traction happened way faster than I could have ever expected. And so now I, I need to build the team around me to not only support the children, but to support the company. So that 25K is going to go into, into really helping, helping build out the team. That's a lot of schools. And are you centered in, in one part of the country? Or are you all over? So, yeah. So the the thousand schools actually are in Texas and in Chicago. So we have a lot, a lot more schools to get to. And I don't know if you've seen the news, but schools are actually getting quite a bit of funding to put towards social and emotional uh, learning and well-being. So now is the time to really get in front of them. That's a great point. Okay. Well, I hope this helps. It's really, it's a great idea. And as I said, the, the help is needed. So it's nice that you're able to, to feed your entrepreneurial bug and also help a lot of kids and families. So that's a, that's a, great, a great pairing. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Christina. Congratulations. And I look forward to hearing about Guardian Lane as it, as it spreads east and west across the country. Oh, no, thank you so much. Let's go to number three, Chris. All right, number three on the list. Uh, you know, this... If, if you've been around the device industry enough, um, you, you know that uh, Regal versus Medtronic, the uh, Supreme Court decision from about a decade o- you know, ago, is very important. I mean, the, the Regal ruling found that uh, 
you know, that, that basically the, that, you know, if a device has a, a, a PMA from the FDA that, you know, that provides you a lot of uh, lawsuit uh, protection, you know, preemption. Uh, but, you know, we now have a case in a federal court in North Carolina in which the estate of a uh, woman uh, died after uh, some, some problems with implantation of a Watchman device from Boston Scientific. Um, her states uh, sued Boston Sci. Um, the Watchman, which is a stroke prevention device, of course, you know, ha- was has pre-market approval. Um, so, uh, you know, Boston Sci was making a, a motion to get this dismissed based on preemption. And, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the estate of, uh, you know, of, uh, of uh, Gene Penland that was, you know, suing Boston Sci was arguing, well, you know, we're, you know, our claims in, involve you know, like a clear and specific manufacturing and assembling defect. And that's what we're suing Boston Sci over. And that this defect, hmm. they're claiming like, that's what, that's what caused Gene Penland to eventually die. It's like, by the way, the loss, it's very, very, very sad death. I mean, it was, um, it was, you know, like, unfortunately with something, you know, like, like it's just, it's just not, it, it was definitely, um, it, was, it was a tough way to, to go reading that lawsuit. Let's just say that, but you know, the judge, he didn't like make a ruling exactly about preemption, but he said, Hey, I think they have enough of an argument here. Let's move forward, do discovery in this case. So, mm-hmm. you know, this thing could turn into uh, this definitely looks like a case to, to watch because this could uh, eventually end up, you know, being a type of case that could uh, kind of change the way the courts handle preemption, which is a really important thing legally for, for medical device companies. So that's, uh, that's number three on our list today is this uh, Watchman related lawsuit. Well, that's a big news for sure. And, and you had some other news from uh, Boston Scientific yeah, as well? Yeah, you know, Boston Scientific had a lot of, a uh, lot of legal news this week. Um, you know, they also uh, settled a host of, uh, pelvic mesh lawsuits with uh, 47 states in the District of Columbia. Um, you wow. know, they're, uh, they're not admitting wrongdoing, but they're going to pay nearly $189 million. And just Boston Sci alone has um, been uh, paying out hundreds of millions of dollars related to pelvic mesh in recent years. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely, you know, like a number of companies made it, uh, you know, FDA ordered a halt to the sales of it in 2019. It's, it's, def- it, it's definitely one of the big failures of the medical device industry over the over the past decade and even even the subject of documentaries and yep. i mean it's uh yeah definitely uh definitely a, a you know like a, a tough thing and you know i think uh, this at least uh for boston side maybe this looks like they, they might be just wrapping up a lot of the legal stuff around it at this point um you know, settling with all these states. You know, here's hoping we're finally maybe like seeing, you know, these uh, settlements starting to, to wrap up. Yep. And, you know, we don't, you know, see see a failure this this bad for a while in the device industry. And bring, and bring those uh, those families some, some comfort, some measure of comfort, yeah. hopefully. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, let's move on to, that was uh, number three, was a two-parter. Now let's, We'll move into uh, into number two. Well, number two, uh, th- this is a little more cheerier, Tom. I mean, I know, yeah, th- this is this has been a little bit more of a somber uh, new markers, newsmakers this week. But uh, we've got, uh, you know, Medtronic. Um, they got a C mark approval for uh, their uh, Sensite, you know, directional lead system for uh, you know deep brain stimulation uh, therapy, and uh, you know, th- this uh, this is being kind of touted as the only directional lead with built-in sensing. Uh, capabilities. And so this could, uh, you know, allow for, uh, you know, much more uh, personalized therapy when it's coming to using uh, deep brain uh, stimulation to, uh, you know, treat kind of like a host of different, you know, brain disorders. So, um, you know, this uh, this device is under review by FDA, but, you know, it looks like some, some innovation in the uh, deep brain stimulation space. You know, it's now going to be you know, available in Europe. That's great news. Yeah. Good news. 
Yeah, I just saying, hey, a number one on the list. Um, this is actually a, a pretty good story for the industry, too. In addition to talking about toilet paper in our first episode, we were talking about the stock prices of medtech companies had taken the tank initially, and we were commenting that typically medtech is uh, rather resilient, or healthcare in general is rather resilient. And it turns out they <laughs> pretty much were. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it, you know, it was uh, actually, you know, uh, if, if you haven't... Uh, if, if for people who don't know, Mass Device and MDO, we've got our MedTech 100 index, which has the world's 100 largest medical device companies on it. Um, it, it ended up being th- their stocks ended up being up like nearly 20% last year. S&P 500 was 16. So, do you want to introduce our special guest, Chris Newmarker? Yeah, we got senior editor Danielle Kirsch, who did a much deeper dive, um, like looking at. Uh, I mean, we've got all these annual reports coming out right now from the big med tech companies. And, and Danielle, welcome. Tell, hey, tell us what we found. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, basically, I found that uh, I, I took the annual reports from the recently released um, 20 of the world's largest medical device companies and found that their revenues only decreased about 0.3% uh, year from year over year from 2019. So um, and the big difference between that and like a normal year, 2018 to 2019, the industry saw a revenue increase 3.4% in normal times. So it's not, it's not too big of a difference, I would say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it looks like normally they were, they were up like 3.4% in 2019 and 2020 was just like a little, little tiny dip. It was pretty much the same. Yeah. And I mean, uh, the companies that really top the list of increased sales, I mean, you can probably guess the diagnostics and imaging companies because all these companies that are making COVID tests and they were able to thrive right now and benefit from everything that happened last year. But all of the elective procedure device companies like orthopedics and some heart device companies were more on the bottom of the list and took bigger hits. But um, some analysts are saying that uh, there's a pent-up demand for those procedures, so there it may increase in the next year. Yeah, so it could be a good year for them. And for those who, who want to really delve in this article more, it's called How Big MedTech Fared During a Year of COVID-19, and it's uh, posted on Medical Design Outsourcing and uh, and Mass Device. And I guess to, to figure out how it's going to go in uh, 2021, um, for those who don't know, you have a uh, a gopher in your backyard, right, Danielle? You, you occasionally, he, he's a nice guy. Do you want to share the name of your groundhog in your backyard? Yeah, Barry, Barry the groundhog. He he yeah. loves to eat the pears off my pear tree. So once wow. that starts blooming, he'll be here. So is there a way, I mean, the way Barry has been acting, does it indicate how the medical device industry is going to do in 2021? <laughs> Great question. Um, I haven't, I haven't asked. Um, <laughs> I haven't, I've barely seen him, but you know, when he comes out, I can, I can, I can surely yell across the yard and ask Barry, how, how's it going? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. See, see what Barry can uh, <laughs> tell us about the device or, you know, maybe we'd love to have him on the podcast. Yeah. I think it'd be great to talk to Barry. Our first wildlife guest. <laughs> You should point out that uh, that Danielle has uh, has lost power, so she's on her phone on on this call, which is why she sounds a yes. little fuzzy and why we we saved her for last. But she she was truly dedicated to uh, 
bringing you this news. So uh, yep. great wrap up there, Danielle. Yeah, great, great job, Danielle. And now it's time for our closing keynote conversation. Let's welcome Steve McMillan, CEO of Hologic. Well, Steve McMillan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Tom. I, I can't imagine a busier med tech company than you've been over the, over the past year. And I want to take apart all of those different maneuvers. It's just, uh, it's been an insane year for all of us, but uh, for you folks in particular. But before we get into all that juicy stuff, I want to understand your, your path into med tech. How did you choose a, a career in this industry? Sure. I'll try to be pretty simple or quick because probably not the most exciting part, but if you look at my career, I, I spent my first three years at Procter & Gamble. So, you know, great company with a rich history. And then if you take it and slice it from there, I was then about a decade at J&J, a decade at Stryker. And believe it or not, I'm coming up on almost a decade at Hologic. In my wow. eighth year at Hologic. And I think the biggest piece that I noticed when I left P&G and went to J&J, it was this magic of still doing business, but suddenly in healthcare, feeling like you're making a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, for the next 30 years has been the magic for me, really, you know, a decade at J&J, a great company, decade at Stryker, great company, making a difference in people's lives. And then coming to Hologic has been even more magical in that there's no company on the planet that's done more for breast and cervical cancer women, you know, anybody having breast or cervical cancer than Hologic. And my own mother is a two-time breast cancer survivor. Oh, really? Um, so, yeah. So it's been, you know, kind of a very personal part of the journey as well uh, for me and just, just magical in we're businesses that can make a, a real difference in the world. And that's been the fun. That's a great point. And I was thinking about that today, hearing about J&J and the, and the vaccine. It must be for, for me, someone who covers the industry, just to hear all of the names of the companies I've been following forever, kind of being reported on as bringing on this test or this drug. It's really it's nice to see our industry get some attention in, in a positive way as, as providing a solution for- uh, Well, you're so, you're so right. If I, if I can just yeah, jump please. in on that. You know, I'm always struck by, particularly as you recruit younger people today coming off college campuses, this and that, right? Everybody wants to make a difference in the world. And a lot of them are looking at nonprofit organizations or government. And I would argue, and particularly when you look at the response from the private sector in the last year- to the biggest issue facing the world, right? First, it was, you know, the testing company, diagnostic companies responding. We're the ones that developed the tests. Mm-hmm. And now you look at what's been achieved in the pharmaceutical biotech industry with the vaccines. Unbelievable. You know, it's the companies that you have covered, yep. you know, year in and year out that have come to the rescue here. And I think we're really on an exciting time right now where we're finally, hopefully, can start to see some real lights ahead of us and getting back to some normalcy that the private sector, while the governments have been there, it's been the private sector that's been making the difference. That's a great point about recruiting. I know you're not directly involved with with the hiring of people, but I do wonder if you're getting a sense that the medtech industry is perhaps getting some cachet with younger people uh, and and it would be easier to draw them away from maybe an Amazon or a Google that always had that buzz factor. But you know, our buzz factor, I think, is more warranted than, than creating a, a faster way to ship a box. In an odd way, I think we haven't played that up as much as we've almost taken it for granted. Mm-hmm. And the interesting part, if you actually go back to Larry Fink's letter a couple of years ago from BlackRock talking about, you know, really all companies, public and private, need to serve a social purpose. To some degree, I think that's been a catalyst, mm-hmm. it's been a catalyst for us 
to actually say, wait a minute, that is what we have been doing. We are the epitome of that company. But realize we probably haven't been screaming it as loudly from the rooftops, even in recruiting. We've almost taken it for granted a little bit. But to some degree, I think all of us hopefully getting more aggressive at telling our story. And I do think we're seeing more people and, and some of the younger folks really interested, especially you know, anybody that's studying science, you know, even the STEM, anything, you know, we, they can make a massive difference in the world with us versus, to your point, you know, shipping boxes faster. Not that that's not important, too. No. But. You know, what we're doing, we think is pretty special. <laughs> Agreed. And, and it's many people I talk to have a personal story like you with your, your mother. And because we're all and it's 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 not because we're unique. We're just every person in the world is touched by healthcare at one point or the other. When I started covering this industry, my parents were getting older and I that was a motivation of mine. I wanted to understand what was sort of coming ahead. So this is an industry that touches everyone, whether we realize it or not. So I think it's something that we all should be harping on a little bit and making people know it. But uh, well, let's let's. Fast forward then uh, to last year when it became clear that there was a big train coming down the, the the tracks at us in the form of the pandemic. When did it become evident at Hologic that this was brewing? And what was your sort of a initial response? You know, I think when it was brewing became a little more obvious really in March. Mm-hmm. of last year. And I remember even at our March board meeting, which was the first week of March, at the audit committee, our IS lead was reporting that they were preparing for a work from home scenario if all of our people had to work from home. And I have to tell you, Tom, I, my eyes were glazed. I was barely paying attention to that thinking, you know, I'm glad you guys have prepared for that. I can't even imagine that happen. Mm-hmm. And you think about how fast things happen three weeks later. Yeah, we were doing that. So, yep. right. Yeah. Me, big, big visionary CEO couldn't <laughs> see three weeks into the future. Uh, but as soon as that came, I think we responded in some ways, like a lot of companies did and in other ways, I think very differently. You know, we certainly, you know, first thoughts were we've got to conserve cash. We have no idea what's going to happen to demand. We watched our surgical business, you know, literally drop 90 percent in about a two week period, um, you know, just dried up as hospitals closed down and just, or, you know, shifted to focus on COVID. So we put in furloughs, we, mm-hmm. you know, cut, you know, sad times at, at plants, we cut salaries of management, you know, all the way up to me, to our board. We did, you know, all of those kind of standard things. At the same time, what was fascinating is we left a lot of the decisions to local managers. So we didn't just do these edicts of, okay, everybody's going to go to a four-day week or everybody's going to do this. So we we left a lot up to the individual managers with overall goals. And because simultaneously, we were pivoting in our diagnostics division. We were working first on developing our PCR-based test uh, for COVID. Mm-hmm. And then we transitioned even further to our TMA, the second high-volume test. So our San Diego facility never shut down. I work out of that. Mike Watts works out of that. You know, we've been to the office every day uh, the entire year. And so that team pivoted quickly, the R&D teams, the manufacturing teams, the regulatory teams. And, you know, I remember even in, in those days, some of the manufacturing employees 
just coming up to me as I'd walk to the cafeteria, just saying, hey, thank you for not shutting us down. Mm-hmm. When, as you know, the state of California had largely shut down and people didn't know where things were going at that point. We were one of the few that people were still showing up at the office or the the, the broader facility every day. Mm. And I think it allowed us to make a difference. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, how about on, on the, the product side? We launched this podcast about a year ago to this day. And I think our second episode featured Kevin Thernall from Hologic talking about a new diagnostic tool for COVID. How much of that was, well, obviously you didn't have COVID, you weren't developing COVID tests for months on end, but you, you seemed to pivot so quickly to sort of being, if not a diagnostics, the diagnostics company for, for COVID. You were coming out with test after test. I mean, you had an infrastructure with, with the Panther products kind of out there already. What was that process like of, all right, we are, the, we are the company that has to answer the call. We have the infrastructure in place. We can develop the tests. Let's divert resources toward, toward that. What was that process like? It was an amazing time. And I would say both exhilarating, exhausting. It was unlike anything I have ever experienced in my career. You know, for, first and foremost, I was so proud internally of our R&D team. And, you know, our head of R&D of our diagnostics business, he actually has a, an additional degree in public health. So as he kind of said, as, as COVID started to build up, he said, you know, I was put on the planet for this kind of stuff. And what his team did first to develop the, the first assay and then the second assay, you know, working around the clock, literally sending stuff into the FDA at three in the morning on a Saturday and just constant dialogue. You know, that team was just incredibly engaged. And if you recall, we had first launched basically our fusion-based assay, which is our PCR technology. And as soon as we launched that, I experienced what I've never had in my career, which is the onslaught of literally practically every governor in the country, Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of congressmen, senators, number of different White House task forces from the the Dr. Burke's regime to a whole bunch of other different parts of the domestic policy advisors, to also suddenly getting personal letters from Boris Johnson, from Jakina Ardern, from, you know, in New Zealand, and prime ministers around the world reaching out also wanting product. And that was an external piece that I've just never encountered yeah. in my career. And Kevin and I were triaging calls and, and managing that side of it in something we've never done and trying to be fair and but also honest in the early days where demand way outstripped supply. So Kevin and his team were doing an amazing job of trying to accommodate both as many customers in the U.S., as many states, this and that, and, you know, navigating the situation unlike we had ever done. And meanwhile, our production teams had totally shifted from making our women's health assays to all of the additional, you know, label changes, everything we had to do to be able to, to supply and ramp production in a way we never had. You know, we were we averaged about 7 million tests a month. Wow. And within a few months of that, we were up at, at almost double that. So we were both, you know, the, our place in San Diego looked like a construction zone while we were also producing stuff. And, you know, the entire parking lot was filled with crates and, you know, just all kinds of supplies. It was unlike anything we'd ever experienced. That's amazing. So you were getting letters uh, sent to you from these world leaders? 
Yes. And some of them very personally signed. The one from Boris Johnson actually came right before he went into the hospital. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, just people that we had never heard from. And, and you know, that they had never heard of Hologic either, to be quite frank, sure. prior to that. And he suddenly had, you know, a number of governors. Kevin Hornall probably personally spoke to at least 25 governors in the country that, you know, 60 days, 30 days prior to those discussions, they had no idea what Hologic and suddenly they're telling us, hey, you know, I've been out touring the labs in our state, the public health labs. They're saying this panther is great. You know, we've got to get throughput going on it. You know, mm-hmm. what can you do to help us out? And, you know, we kind of staged with them. Hey, here's where we are in our production builds. And you know what? A month from now, we'll be in a very different place. We can try to take care of you. And we're building it up and trying to be as fair as we could. It's amazing how, how remarkable that sounds now. But as you tell the story, I, I'm taken back to that time when all the governors were scrambling to get resources for their state. They're all sort of trying to, so I can certainly see that that perfectly fits the, the narrative uh, of the time. You, you joked earlier about working from home and how you didn't see three weeks ahead. Uh, but at the time now, say April, May of last year, I mean, there was still, we, we, Looking back, we probably all think, "Oh no, we knew it was coming." We didn't really know it was coming. We had we had events at Device Talks in June that we canceled, but we had one in, in September that some or yeah, it was September that some people were like, "Well, you know, maybe you know." And there was sort of a pushback. Now you kind of look back, you're like, "Oh my God, what mm-hmm. were we thinking?" So I guess I'm telling that story to say there was we still didn't know what we were dealing with. What did you think you were dealing with April and May? Were you pushing all your chips onto the diagnostics? part of the, the the table and betting heavily on that, knowing that this was going to be what it became, or were you still sort of trying to feel your way around it? Always feeling our way around it. As I say to our employees, there was no playbook for this, right? And I do think it's a time where, frankly, employees were looking for leadership. Yeah. And I think all of us were looking for leadership in our lives. And to some degree, I think many of us were disappointed on certain fronts on that front. And I think it's part of where the governors were scrambling. There there was a whole bunch of scrambling all over the place. Um, I would love to tell you, you know, we had some grand plan. I would say I probably was never managing more minute to minute. Kevin and I, you know, luckily his office is about 100 feet from mine. You know, we joked about the well-worn pathway between our offices. We were making decisions to invest more in capital, to you know, expand, but but not knowing. And we made a whole bunch of decisions, even as we were investing to gear up much more production for the fall. Because what I did see, and I did talk about this with our team, I think by doing a lot of the lockdowns, what we did is I'd use the analogy of air in a balloon. We pushed out, there would have normally been more cases in March, April, May of last year. But by locking mm-hmm. down, all we really did is delayed them. And so we were betting on the fall being a big time for a COVID surge. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, even at that point, a lot of the Wall Street people were thinking, it's going to be over by that. Right? It's back to none of us really knew. Yeah. And it, it, if, it'd be great to be able to go back and put people, as you, as you just did with yourself, what were we thinking at the time? Because people forget that. You know, all I did know is I thought it was going to be a difficult fall winter because we were pushing this thing out. And so we bet on really trying to scale our production, being there for our customers for that time. 
at the same token, you know, we have a breast health and surgical business that were going nowhere. The mm-hmm. main thing we did there was we communicated and we took care of our sales teams. We said for our salespeople who are all commissioned, we said, look, we're going to pay you at least 80% of what you got last year. That's great. So we want to make sure that you know, you know, regardless of how long this goes, we have your back. That's great. And those kinds of decisions paid off enormously later in the year, and just that loyalty and trust in the management. So it was multitasking in ways and just being flexible, nimble. You know, we had no idea we had to close a bunch of our plants and then started to see some little tidbits. Okay, let's start to get some people back. Um, but it was truly, you know, our management team started to, to, to meet basically via, via phone weekly. We used to do a bi-weekly mm-hmm. just so we could all stay very close and, and make decisions together as we progressed through the time. That's a great point about Wall Street. And, and also, I, wanted, I, I did want to understand how you were sort of managing that expectations. But the other relationship that you, you know, have to work with with these products, we all do in devices, or all of you do in devices, I just talked to you, <laughs> but it's dealing with the FDA. And it seems at the time there was so many EUAs given, they, all these things were happening and we didn't, see, we didn't have a choice. We needed solutions, but they, the, it seemed like the rigor was being put aside, again, for understandable reasons. How would you characterize your, your relationship and your exchange with the FDA, getting all these diagnostics out on the product? How, how do you think they did? And Similarly, well, let's let's talk just about the FDA first, and then we can kind of go back to Wall Street. So how did the FDA fare, in your opinion, during all of that? I would put it as truly some of the best of moments yeah. of FDA. I've never seen teams work harder. You know, I think those people, just like our teams in San Diego, you know, they all rallied and literally they were reviewing our EUA applications during the weekend. You know, we submitted mm-hmm. it on a Saturday. We were approved by late Monday. They worked round the clock. But even prior to that, we were in communications with them and they were responding very quickly to all the questions instead of waiting for a document to show up on their desk so that we knew by the time we actually submitted the, the, the data and the, the formal application, they had already been reviewing the data, you know, in advance. And it was truly, I think, one of those great public-private partnerships mm-hmm. where they, I, I truly think they deserve an enormous amount of credit, as they do with the vaccines. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they created streamlined ways that did not affect safety, and to yeah. help get more and more products out there. And that's what the world needed first in tests and second in vaccines. So I really think the FDA deserves a lot of credit that probably they haven't necessarily even got during this time frame. No, that's a great point. And with the vaccines in particular, I mean, we've had, what, 60 million doses at this point, and not would nothing negative, really significant negative outcomes to, to point to. Yeah, I'm curious, though, with the... With the FDA, less with how they dealt with you, but they did approve a lot of diagnostics. Like we were at Mass Device, there seemed to be three or four a day, <laughs> and I, I couldn't tell them apart. I don't know which one. That that sort of muddies the water, I would think, for Hologic. If you've got all these little companies saying, I have one, I have one, one over here too. What did that do to the diagnostics feel for, for COVID? Did it make it harder for you to make a case, or were you comfortable with your position as, to clear, as a clear leader? 
we're comfortable with our position. I, you know, I have described it. It was a little bit of the wild, wild west because there were so many companies jumping in. But at the same token, you know, demand was still outstripping supply. Mm-hmm. And so in that equation, it was hard for us to be saying, hey, wait a minute, slow things down when the greater good was getting tests out there for people. Mm-hmm. You know, would I have preferred to have a few less approved and, you know, our market share would have been even bigger, maybe a little, but we were selling everything we could make. Yeah. The demand was there. So I think they did the right thing in terms of EUAs at the time. Now the question becomes whether some of those should continue to be on. And they've they've been actually doing that, going back and revoking a few of the EUAs, or ultimately if people want formal mm-hmm. clearances, you know, that'll be a different different path. And I do think that's where what I say is the cream rises to the top. So, you know, we had that period. And now I think we're going to be in the period of the shakeout. That's that's an interesting point. And that's more of my point is that there were so many tests out there that that you'd talk to friends and like, oh, I got a test. It said I didn't have it. I did have it. Now, this one had a test. And, and it just seemed to really shine negatively on it, on tests as a whole because there was so many out there. People just lose faith in, in the test overall. You know, to me, there were two negatives coming out yeah. of that testing neither of which were good. And, you know, some still, you know, kind of overhangs that we obviously want to work through. The first was that the molecular tests take way too long to get back. And that was really because particularly the reference labs, the question lab cores were just overwhelmed in the beginning. And it was a game of trains, planes, and automobiles, right? You're, you know, swabbing somebody in California, you're shipping the test off to New Jersey, you know, it's, taking time to, you know, get tested and get back and all of that. And it was just, you know, a bit of a mess there. So that I worried that molecular tests were being tarnished a bit around time to result. And that gave, I think, a little bit more of an impetus for the FDA to give more EUAs for the antigen tests. And the antigen tests all the experts have always known are far less sensitive and specific. And normally probably would have, you know, we would have preferred to be more um, active at talking about their shortcomings, but at a time when we couldn't meet full demand and consumers wanted something, it was, I think the lesser of all evils to still get some, you know, not as accurate tests out there. Yep. But it it is difficult because those antigen, many of the antigen tests have so many false negatives where, you know, people think they're okay and they're really not. So I'm hopeful that as we time has passed, you know, more mm-hmm. and more are going to the better tests and people are seeking out. And I think we've gotten much better turnaround times now on the molecular tests, which, you know, will give you both, you know, the better turnaround time and a much more efficacious test. That's well said. Yeah. And, and my comments is, as you took them are not critical of anyone, just more commentary on, uh, on the tests themselves. Yeah. And we were always looking and, and, and concerned because we also had a million people, you know, a lot of these little startup fly by nights and especially foreign companies that suddenly said they had a COVID test and they wanted us to distribute it and all that stuff. And we, stuck very close to our knitting, which is, 
you know, we have a phrase and it's on the wall behind me, the science of sure. Mm-hmm. If we don't have great compelling data, we're not going to lower our standard just to get additional revenue in the door. If we can't stand behind the absolute sensitivity specificity of our diagnostic tests. That's great. Well, let's, I'm going to put the Wall Street question aside because I want to focus on, on Hologic and I, I know we have limited time. So COVID has really changed so many institutions. I'm wondering how it changed Hologic. You, you, you divested the aesthetics business. You've acquired a number of companies in the diagnostics business. Has Hologic's makeup changed? Will it be different in the future? And is that a result of COVID or was it a, a, a plan that was in place or was it a plan that was placed that was perhaps accelerated by COVID like so many other institutions have been? I'm asking three questions there, but <laughs> how is how has all of this changed to logic? And then I want to understand why the changes came about. That was that was absolutely you you referenced about skipping over Wall Street. That was a Wall Street kind of approach. I have one question with 14 <laughs> legs to it, so that because they know they only get one question and one. And then I'll have a follow. Yeah, yes. right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but on a more serious note, there, Tom, the I would say what has happened to us is one of the phrases you put in there, it's accelerated the plan we were already on. And clearly post the divestiture of Sinusure and and refocusing on our three core businesses. Uh, Our whole approach in in our diagnostics business has been place more Panthers around the world and add more menus, some more tests. And we have been placing more and more of those Panthers out in a decentralized fashion, instead of just being mm-hmm. high volume machines at, you know, call it Quest and Lab for, we've been placing them in hospitals, placing them in the regional labs, everything else, and then adding menus. So in addition to our women's health assays, we've just been building out more and more test assays. So in a way we were perfectly positioned with those Panthers that we've been placing for the last eight years to capitalize on the COVID situation and then, you know, be able to, to run our tests through there. And in turn, our success there has created additional cash flow in the nearer term that we've been able to then go do some acquisitions like Assessa for our surgical business and then really two diagnostics acquisitions earlier this year, both biotheranostics and now most recently Diagenos. Mm-hmm. So it's allowing us really to build even stronger. And to, to one of your other points, every company sits there and says, oh, we're going to come out of this stronger on the other side. There is zero doubt. And our employees know that we are coming out stronger. We have strengthened every step of the way through this. And mm-hmm. with all the additional Panther placements, we've increased our Panther placements globally by almost a third. I mean, I, I kind of joke, if we could have created an event that would allow us to double our Panther placements every year for a couple of years, you know, that would have been the single greatest thing we could do to make us stronger on the other side. Well, it happened, you know, I hate to say, you know, we, we didn't manufacture that event, but with that happening, it has strengthened it. Mm-hmm. And it's then taken our whole company reputation, especially internationally to a completely different level. As I mentioned, you know, when Boris Johnson and, you know, the prime ministers of, you know, and presidents of so many of the, the countries all throughout Europe and Asia now know the Hologic name, 
opening doors already for other things in our breast health business mm-hmm. and other things in our diagnostics businesses. So it's we're just on a very different plane now than we were. Yeah, I, I was watched the, and I don't know how, I don't know what the date of the video on your website was, but it did mention you had, I think, 2,000 Panther machines. You were expecting a place another 500, and I expect that's probably a little out of date. Uh, but you increased production staff by 50%. Uh, so, I mean, there's some 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 big numbers and, and some big growth going there. Just that you, you mentioned the two companies you're acquiring. Are, are you done buying or are you still uh, still shopping around? We're still shopping around. You know, we're staying disciplined. There's mm-hmm. a lot, you know, a lot of acquisitions to be had out there. There's a lot of money chasing deals right now. I think we want to be continue to be very smart and, you know, do these tuck in deals that will strengthen our existing businesses. Um, so we'll, you know, we're still out there poking around certainly. And are you, what sort of roadmap are you following in, in these acquisitions? Are, are you building a logic for another pandemic or are you, are you satisfied with what you have on sort of the infectious disease side and you're more, going back to your bread and butter in, in women's health and really focusing on that? It's really more our bread and butter. You know what? Yeah. I would say we, you know, I'm enormously proud of how we have capitalized to both make a difference in the world mm-hmm. um, with our COVID testing and make a difference for you know so many lives. But at the end of the day, our goal all the way through has been to emerge as a stronger company on our core businesses, mm-hmm. such that if COVID revenue goes to zero in a few years, which, by the way, will probably be really good for humankind. Yes, and <laughs> we all hope that. That's that's okay. Uh, that even if that happens, our core businesses will be growing faster. So, you know, building on you know our strong presence in breast cancer and cervical cancer, and now with biotheranostics, kind of building that same thing, continuing breast cancer in a different way, and you know, or just continue to build out our, especially our women's health but a little more into some of the oncology diagnostics, mm-hmm. kind of what we've been in, you know, in breast cancer, cervical cancer to begin with, but building Great. out all of those. I want to hit two more points. Uh, one of them is, and despite my slightly disparaging comment about Google, you, you do have a collaboration with Google Cloud for uh, the next generation diagnostic, digital diagnostic capabilities. What, is that, what does that effort look like? It's really an extension of a lot of what we've been doing in first our breast health business over the last you know five plus years, which is using more and more artificial intelligence to be able to help read and help radiologists speed up their ability to read and detect cancer. And we're bringing that same thinking over to the cervical cancer side and partnering with Google on that so that that's an area we don't have quite as much um, of our own data. So being able to tap in with them and have them uh, helping us develop that AI capability on the cervical cancer side is another way for us to build things out. Terrific. And, and final question your, or, or discussion. You're, you've started a, a new global women's health index. You're working with Gallup on a world poll. So tell us what, your, what is this effort for? How are you doing it? And what can we look forward to getting from it later on, I guess, in terms of data and information? Uh, thanks for asking. This is an idea that uh, one of our people came up with a couple of years ago. It just said, you know, there's really no good data on women's health globally, particularly country by country. And what if we partnered with Gallup, 
who does this thing known as the, world, the Gallup World Poll every year and developed actually questions to start to bring a greater lens on women's health. And so we had started this literally a couple of years ago. We fielded it. It was just being fielded about a year ago for the first time, it, you know, kind of the March, April timeframe was going into the field. We're literally out talking to 120,000 people in 116 wow. countries. And we, by the way, did not pull the plug. We said, even though we weren't sure about money, everything else, this was a commitment we made. We wanted to start because we just don't think there's enough information about women's health. And we thought if we can start to shine a brighter light on women's health and bring data to governments around the world, that alone will start to have a massive impact. It's back to what gets measured gets mm -hmm. active. Right. And you have a lot of governments that say, boy, we want to make sure that 50 percent of all you know, women are getting screened for cancer every two years. Uh, well, they're not necessarily measuring that. We're able to go out. And now in this poll, for example, we can now go country by country and say, here are your goals. Here's the data we have found. And it's designed really just to be an enabler mm -hmm. of shining that brighter light. Uh, on things. It, we also figured it would elevate the whole logic name to some degree by helping to bring this data, but we never wanted it to look, you know, crass and commercial. Therefore, and I think part of what's been fascinating that people have been intrigued with, we're also asking about categories we're not in, like cardiovascular mm -hmm. health. You know, we're asking about domestic violence. Um, and I think the fascinating part is we started this beforehand, but I think in a pandemic world, where women and women's health has probably been far more back burnered. Mm -hmm. Women have put others ahead of themselves in so many ways. I think the data that's just starting to roll off from the first year is going to be fascinating uh, and, and very illuminating. And I, I think it may turn out to be, I was talking to our board last week that for all the products we've made in our life of our 3D mammography, the PAP test, our HPV tests, everything else, in its own way, this product being the data that we get from this thing may turn out to have the biggest impact on human health of anything we've ever done. Um, and it's not a product we're going to sell or monetize. It's just, um, I think, part of being a company with a deep purpose and hopefully bringing something to society that's going to be a tremendous value. It's certainly topical following last year's killing of George Floyd and, and just the, the look at inequities in a society, including in particular healthcare. I think it's uh, certainly a topical discussion. This is something that you're going to be producing annually for the foreseeable future. Yes. Yes, we are. And uh, we've committed to that. And uh, interestingly, the world economic forum. So the, the group that obviously has the meeting in Davos every year, as they learned about mm. this, they've invited us to join join with them wow. on their journey as well because they're so fascinated by the impact they think this study can have. And they said, you know, there's, there's nobody that's ever done anything like this in the world. And it should be able to have a massive impact on human health. You know, not just women's health, but by definition, human health. Excellent. Well, this has been a really illuminating conversation. I, I'm, I'm grateful for the time uh, and I hope your spring is a little, uh, a little calmer than, uh, than a year ago. So uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having us, Tom. It's great to see you again. You take care of yourself. You too, Steve. Take care. 
All right, it was great to hear from Steve McMillan from Hologic and Chris Newmarker. You know what time it is, right, Chris? Hey, it's time to it's time to tell everybody how they can reach us. That's right. So I'll go first. Actually, no, Danielle's our guest. Danielle, you should go first. Danielle, Danielle Kirsch, where can folks find you on the social media machine? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Kirsch, K-I-R-S-H. And uh, LinkedIn, same name, Danielle Kirsch. And are you hanging out at the clubhouse like Chris Newmarker and I? I haven't yet. Well, we'll have to get you on there so you can uh, you can you can be like one of the cool kids and, uh, and <laughs> listen people talk all day long. But the, the the best hour on Clubhouse probably I would say is eleven thirty a.m. Eastern time yeah, on Mondays. That's the time I'm definitely yep. on. So with you, yeah. So <laughs> that's you right. Come on, and say hi. Well, to we us. have. Despite, uh, come on, 11.30 a.m. here, great hour of MedTech Audio. Chris Newmark and I will be there with uh, with many guests. We're, we're hoping to have uh, Christina Jones, the CEO of Guardian That's Lane, great. join us to talk about her very, very important company and her experience with the MedTech Color Pitch Contest. And uh, hopefully we'll have some other friends as well. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Hey, and you can find me too on LinkedIn. Chris Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. I'm on Twitter as well, at Newmarker. Always, always happy to, to talk to people. And I am uh, on Twitter at MedTechTom, on Clubhouse at MedTechTom, and on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, like Salem, with an I at the end of it. And uh, that is all the information we have for you on that. And uh, with that, please do share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Make sure you post it on social media. When you do, tag Chris, Danielle, and myself so we can be uh, part of that conversation. Please do check out Danielle Kirsch's story on MDO. It's uh, an important story. We'll have it up on social media as well, so you can find it there. And uh, subscribe. That's the best way to uh, to get this podcast first. We've got uh, lots of folks who listen to this the Friday night when I post it. So people are subscribing. You should as well. Uh, I think as Chris said poetically uh, a few weeks ago, just do it or something like that. You were, Sign up. You were right just to the do point. do it. Sign up. <laughs> That's right. You won't regret it. You will not regret it. If you've listened this far to the podcast and then subscribing is just the thing for you. And uh, with that, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast waiting for you. Take care. Get vaccinated soon. Just rub it in, Chris. That's fine. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, man. They'll get it out of Massachusetts soon. You'll get it. <laughs>